Good morning. It's Wednesday, July 13th. I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. New video from inside the elementary school in Uvalde provides the most detailed account we've seen of officers' delayed response to the mass shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers. It took 77 minutes before officers entered the classroom and killed the shooter. This surveillance and body camera video was obtained exclusively by the Austin American Statesman and the TV station KVIEW. It shows police initially approaching the classroom where the gunman was, then retreating. Then it shows officers waiting as gunfire continues. More officers show up over time, and many of them are well-equipped with body armor, helmets, shields, and heavy weapons. They're seen looking for keys to doors that we now know were unlocked. There's more gunfire and more waiting. At one point, an officer puts on hand sanitizer. At another point, two officers fist bump. The editor of the American Statesman said the decision to publish the video came after long and thoughtful discussions and was necessary to get to the truth about the response to the shooting. They also said they chose to edit the video to remove the sounds of children screaming, which they deemed too graphic. The police response to the shooting is under investigation, and there have been calls for more disclosure of what happened on that day. But not everyone is happy with how this video went public. One woman whose daughter was killed posted on Facebook urging people not to share the video, saying this is the opposite of what the families want. At a public meeting in Uvalde last night, City Council member Ernest King III criticized the news outlets for putting out this footage. They did that for ratings and they did that for money. And that's the only reason they put that out there. Several people in the crowd didn't want to focus on the role of the media. They said instead of attacking the press, attack the cops that did nothing. Pete Arredondo, the school district's police chief who's been criticized by law enforcement experts for the slow response that day, also came up in yesterday's meeting. He'd been elected to the city council a few weeks before the shooting. Last night, when the council passed a motion to accept his resignation from his council post, the crowd cheered. One man who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th testified that he joined the group because former President Trump's words encouraged him to go. The January 6th committee heard from Stephen Ayers yesterday. He previously pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct for his role in the attack. The committee's Republican vice chair, Liz Cheney, questioned him. Would it have made a difference to you to know that President Trump himself had no evidence of widespread fraud? Oh, definitely. You know, um, who knows? I may not have come come down here. Ayers said he only left the Capitol after Trump released a video asking supporters to go home. That was more than three hours after the insurrection started. To me, if he would have done that earlier in the day, 1.30, I, I, you know, you know, we wouldn't be in this, maybe we wouldn't be in this bad of a situation or something. It's the latest testimony to support the January 6th committee's argument that Trump is responsible for inciting the insurrection 
because the Capitol attackers followed his instructions. Ayers told the committee that he's angry that Trump continues to mislead his followers. It, ma- it makes me mad because I, I was hanging on every word he was saying. Everything he was putting out, I was following it. I mean, if I was doing it, hundreds of thousands or millions of other people are, are doing it. Before Ayers left the House chamber yesterday, he approached the police officers in attendance and apologized for his actions that day. We also heard testimony from Jason Van Tatenhoff, the former spokesman for the far-right group The Oath Keepers, which he called a militia. What it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. The January 6th committee also revealed more about potential witness tampering. Cheney said Trump attempted to contact a future witness. The committee shared information about the outreach to the Justice Department. There's another public hearing expected next week, which the committee says will focus on what Trump did and did not do on the day of the attack. President Biden is on his first Mideast trip as president, visiting Israel, the West Bank, and Saudi Arabia. Now, that last stop is a big deal. Biden has heavily criticized Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for human rights violations. But the source of his power is the Saudi oil supply. So Biden is meeting with him in part to encourage the kingdom to pump more oil to help keep gas prices down. But Politico senior foreign affairs correspondent Nahal Tusi says some people see that as a dead end. There's just a mixed sense, though, of how much they can actually do. I mean, when you ask whether the Saudis can actually increase production, some experts will tell you actually that they're at capacity. There's not much more that they can do. This trip is about much more than just oil prices. Regional security, including threats from Iran, will be a major topic. Tusi says one player may get the most out of Biden's visit. If there's any country that really comes out on top as a result of this upcoming visit that President Biden is making to the Middle East, it's Israel. And that's because so far under Biden's presidency, whether he's wanted to or not, practically everything he's done has been in some ways a victory for the Israeli government. That's because, for one, Biden has largely continued the very pro-Israel policies of his predecessor. Trump moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing it as the capital of Israel. Biden has not reversed that decision. He did restore some aid money to Palestinians and has spoken out against expanding settlements. But the administration has put in very little diplomatic effort behind the Palestinian movement for an independent state. In many ways, Biden's foreign policy is an echo of Trump's foreign policy when it comes to Israel and the broader Middle East as a whole. Trump also pulled America out of the nuclear deal with Iran. Some inside the Biden administration wanted to restore that deal, but that hasn't happened. That's seen as a victory for Israel over its Iranian enemy. Supporters of Palestinians worry the Biden administration is too close to Israel. They want the U.S. to pressure Israel to fully explain the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. U.S. investigators recently said it was likely that Israeli soldiers shot her, but didn't conclude that it was intentional. 
Tusi writes, ultimately, Biden is setting policy that's based on decades of foreign affairs experience. And that includes a front row seat to the kind of political blowback that comes when a president clashes with Israel. As one political analyst put it, being pro-Israel is baked into Biden's political DNA. This week, Ada Limon was named America's newest poet laureate. She's been described as a poet who connects, who writes accessible, engaging poetry that grounds us in where we are and who we share our world with. She often writes about our relationship with nature. Limon stopped by NPR to talk about her new role, which she calls an incredible honor and the shock of a lifetime. So I thought it might be nice to end our show on a different note today and just listen together to Limon read part of her poem called Give Me This, where the narrator is watching a groundhog stealing fresh tomatoes from her garden. I watched her munch and stand on her haunches, taking such pleasure in the watery bites. Why am I not allowed delight? A stranger writes to request my thoughts on suffering, barbed wire pulled out of the mouth as if demanding that I kneel to the trap of coiled spikes used in warfare and fencing. Instead, I watch the groundhog more closely, and a sound escapes me, a small spasm of joy I did not imagine when I woke. She is a funny creature, and earnest, and she is doing what she can. To survive. Limon has said she writes to remind others that we are nature too. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And when you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. I'll talk with you again tomorrow. <laughs>